0: Good morning, morning. is the mic good? Good, I took out my normal mic in the first two services, so we're trying something different, just wanted to make sure you could hear me. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Samuel 28, Let's, uh, let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for your inspired, inerrant word. We thank you, Father, for a series this summer, unlike most that are exegetical, this is topics and texts that are difficult. Father, as we talk today, may your truth be evident to us, may your word become Alive in our hearts, in our minds. We don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. So we ask that you would allow me to share truth. And if I were to share things that are incorrect, give us the wisdom to ignore that. We truly desire to be changed by your truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, we're talking a little bit about texts and topics that are challenging. And 1 Samuel 28 fits that very, very well. You may know it as the medium or the witch of Andor. And as we talk about it, I think it would be helpful for us to define the occult Because the occult is what the text is about. And I would define the occult as this. It's the interaction with spirits or the demonic world, whether we know it or not, in order to get information or intervention that God does not intend us to have. That's the occult. It's rather broad. It is seeking intervention or information when God has not granted that to us. As I thought about this, I thought about a mission trip many years ago that Betty Ann and I took to Ireland. We were invited there to do some ministry with some missionaries that we knew there. And on our free time, they took us to a rather abnormal Anglican church. And I want to stress the word abnormal because Anglicans would no more appreciate what we saw in this church than we would. So it's not typical of an Anglican church. But when we walked in, it was about one large room. That was about the entire church. And as I looked to the altar, there were three signs of the zodiac that were intricately painted in the front. And three more signs of the zodiac intricately painted towards the back, and three more on my right, and three more on my left. Unless we misunderstand, this was not about astronomy, it was about astrology, and there's a world of difference. A few minutes ago, we cited from Psalm 8, verses 1, 3, and 4. That's about astronomy. We talked a few weeks ago about natural revelation in Romans 1, that the truth of God is apparent to all because God has created the world in such a way that we ought to be able to look at the creation and know that there is a creator. That's astronomy. Genesis 1 We can tell the seasons from the stars. That's astronomy. Astrology is seeking to predict the future. It is looking for intervention or information that God has not granted to us. And Deuteronomy 18, we'll look at it a little bit later, tells us that this kind of information has no part and parcel among God's people. Isaiah 49 tells us that certainly we will incur judgment and discipline if we engage ourselves in this type of activity. And yet if I'm honest, I can just drive around town And see all sorts of the occult. I can go to a place and have my palms read. Or someone to interact with a crystal ball or other crystals to give me the future. I can read the horoscopes. There are all sorts of aspects of the occult. And if I'm honest, it's not just outside the church. Sometimes it's within the church. I've even known individuals who tragically have lost a loved one, who have attempted to interact with a necromancy, someone who claims to interact with the dead, which is what this text is about. I've known that even here in Wausau. I want to pick up in our text, and I want to read about Saul's encounter With the occult and the invitation by Saul of the occult into his life. In those days, the Philistines, that is the sea people, they were five city nations. They were in Gaza or Syria or Lebanon. I'm assuming this probably talks about modern day Gaza Strip. They worshiped Dagon, the sea god. He was a fertility cult. Normally when we talk about a fertility cult, we're talking about engaging in immoral acts with prostitutes in order to entice the gods to send rain so that there might be bountiful fields. But Dagon was a sea god, and this fertility cult was to engage in ritualistic prostitution in order to have a good catch from the boat in those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel and Achish that is the king said to David who is not yet a king understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army David has left Israel and come over to the land of the Philistines David said to Achish very well you shall know what your servant can do And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Uh, That is a very foolish king. Now Samuel, that is the prophet at this time over Israel, had Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all of Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. If you've been to Israel, you have been to Gilboa. If you've gone with me, uh, I take you to Yad Vashim, which means a place and a name. It's the Jewish Holocaust. And as we leave there, we go right by Gilboa. And I usually make a comment that Israel has planted tens of thousands of trees on Mount Gilboa. And none of them are alive. None. Remember, God cursed Mount Gilboa at the death of Saul and his sons and said, essentially, nothing shall live there. And guess what? They've tried. Still nothing lives on Mount Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Aram or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium, that is a spiritist, at Endor. So Saul disguised himself. That is, it's against God's law, and he's actually made it a law of the land, Not to go to mediums, so he disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with me, or with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He's not obeying the Lord. The Lord is anything but the Lord of his life. And yet he's swearing by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, who shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel who had died for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and he paid homage. I'd like to set our scene for us. The king is King Saul, but David has already been anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. Now King Saul does not have a strong self-esteem. He's always looking over his shoulder. In fact, he will spend the rest of his life sending his army or personally going after David to put David, his rival, to death. And David does what most of us would naturally do, He begins to flee. Who's not going to flee when a king and an army are coming for you? And so he begins to go from place to place, generally in Israel, but I think very unwisely, he leaves the promised land. He leaves the land of his Lord, and he goes to the land of Dagon. He goes to one of the Philistine nations. I've already mentioned he's either in Lebanon or Syria, or most likely he's in the Gaza. And he goes there, and he begins a life of deceit. It's not a good luck. And he begins to deceive. And he deceives Achish, who has got to be one of the most foolish kings known to history. And the king says, we're about to go out to battle against Israel. You and your men are going to accompany us. And David says, hey, man, you haven't seen me fight for you. I am going to fight really well. And, he, and the king says, oh, well, then why don't you be my bodyguard for life? Now, if we were to read the 29th chapter, we would see that the king's men can see through the ruse of David and they see the foolishness of Achish. Now, I want us to think for a moment how foolish this king is. Think back with me to who takes out a giant by hitting him between the headlights with a rock. And that's David who takes out Goliath. Philistine. And you think of chapter 18 verse 7. We hear of this little ditty. Saul has slain his thousands but David his tens of thousands. Who are the tens of thousands that David has murdered? That David has killed? That David has destroyed? They're Philistines. And so now David is in the land of the Philistines and he saddles up ...to the king, and he befriends the king. And pretty soon the king is saying, hey, you ought to be my bodyguard for life. And David pursues more and more lies and more and more deceit. And they go out to battle. Now David is not pro-Philistine, but the king thinks he is. And you can now imagine this scene for Saul. Saul's greatest warrior is David who seems to be pro-Philistine, who seems to be on the other side. The Philistines are five city nations. They have more power, more weaponry, superior weaponry, including iron weaponry. They have more firepower than the Israelites, and they outnumber the Israelites greatly. And they've come to this area somewhere around Jerusalem, and we have Saul looking out. He's outgunned, outnumbered. His best warrior seems to be on the other side. So naturally he would turn to a prophet, Samuel, but Samuel is dead. He would turn to Samuel and say, hey buddy, you and I have had hard times. We haven't exactly agreed. But we're both Israelites. Why don't you call upon God and get us out of this mess? But Samuel's dead. Or he might turn to David and say, hey... I know I've chased you around the country. I've tried to take your life, but hey, we're both Jews. These are the Philistines. You're the Philistine hunter. Go get them, boy. Except David is on the other side. And so what is the man to do? He doesn't walk with the Lord. He doesn't love the Lord. He doesn't honor the Lord. But, I mean, he is in in a trench, a foxhole, and he begins to utter up a few prayers. Let me read verses 5 and 6 again. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Didn't answer him. Neither by dreams, or by Aram, or by the prophets. Now think about this. Saul is not walking with the Lord at all. He's thumbed his nose at the Lord. He is pursuing the Lord's anointed, the next king, David. And now he's in a bit of a strait, a bit of a difficult time. And now he wants a prayer life. It's time to get out his daily devotions. And he wants to talk to God and he wants God to answer him. And the heavens are as brass. His prayers go nowhere. He prays and, and God does not respond. And it happens. In fact, the Bible tells us that's what we ought to expect. Sometimes we find individuals who think it's God's job to answer prayer. He's sovereign, we are not. He knows the beginning from the end, and He has the right, the sovereign right, to listen to some prayers and to ignore others. In fact, Isn't that what scripture says repeatedly? Isaiah 59, the second verse. But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Of course, it's a euphemism. He hears all, he knows all, but he's not listening because of why the iniquities Within a Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity or sin in my heart, you God will not hear me. First Peter 3, the twelfth verse. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. James 5:16, the prayers of the righteous availeth much, or the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Sometimes I interact with individuals that come into my office. They don't know God. They don't want to know God. They're not even sure that God exists, but they're angry at him if he does. They've thwarted and thumbed their nose at God, and now something has happened in their life. And they're offering up a couple prayers. Not confession, not repentance. Just prayers of what God ought to do. As though God is a rabbit foot to be rubbed. A talisman to follow instruction. A genie to grant three wishes. And they're angry because God doesn't respond. Or sometimes it's a Christ follower. It's it's one of us. But it's at times when we're not walking with the Lord and we're wayward and sliding and, and then something happens in our life and it's clearly out of our control as if something was actually in our control but clearly outside of our control. And not confession, not repentance. But Lord, do this. And God doesn't. And we feel angry and bitter. That's Saul. Do you notice what Saul doesn't try? He's interested in a prophet. He's interested in a warrior. He's interested in talking to God, but do we notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't confess that he has been walking away from the Lord. He doesn't confess that his heart is far from God. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn. And he takes matters into his own hands and and he consults a medium. Listen to what God's word says about this kind of activity. Saul knew this by the way. He made it the law of the land to avoid this kind of activity. Which was convenient when he didn't think he needed it. But when he needs the occult he embraces it. Deuteronomy 18 10-12 There shall not be found among you Anyone who burns his son or daughter is an offering infanticide. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, that is one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things, charms or horoscopes or good luck charms or tea leaves or Ouija boards or magic or parapsychology, we could go on, Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. We really see the same thing in the pages of the New Testament. I think of Acts chapter 9 or yeah 19 verses 18 to 20. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. Notice what they did. Maybe they were ignorant of occult practices or maybe they were willful of the will of God. I don't know. But they had these practices of the occult. They then became convicted in their hearts, and it says they confessed, they agreed with God. And it says they repented, they turned, they actually burned the books of magic. And then what does the text tell us? The word of God prevailed, the word of God moved forward. And that's the way it is for us as well. If we want the word of God to move forward in our lives, among our neighbors, among our family members... We need to make sure that we're right with God that we've confessed up that we've turned or it's not just lip service but we've turned we've repented and then the word of God will prevail if we want to reach our community for Christ It starts with us living confessed and repented lives as many of you do so well We all need to do so well And there's probably areas in all of our lives that we still need to confess And the power of God's spirit repent and turn. And then see the word of God moving powerfully. Powerfully. But Saul didn't. In the last two services. I looked out. As I am now. But in each of the first two services. I saw three sets Of parents who had lost a child six and there's several here today in this service as well and I don't know how many in Merrill or Marathon or Weston and those campuses but we've had a lot of families parents lose a child and, and I can't even imagine that kind of pain I can't imagine that kind of grief and and that kind of agony. And some of you know it. My heart goes out to you. But I know one of the ways that we don't seek healing is to go to a spiritist and ask them to connect us with the one who is left. You're not connecting with the one who is left. You're connecting with the demonic, the spiritual world, the one that Paul told us our battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and forces of this dark world. And you could push back and say, no, no, no. The spirit has told me things about my child that the spiritist couldn't know. No, but the spirit does. That is the demonic spirit that the medium is interacting. That demonic spirit knows your child better than you do. It's not one of the means that God has given us for healing. The occult is interacting with the demonic, whether we know it or not, seeking information or intervention where God has not granted it. That's what Saul did. Let's continue on in the text. In 1 Samuel 28, I want to read now verses 15 to the first part of 20. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has turned the kingdom out of your hand, torn, excuse me, torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. That is, you'll die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is one of those texts that people have asked me about from time to time. And it's one of those texts that even the history of interpretation has not been uniform. And so I want to tell you how some of the early church fathers have interacted with the text. Perhaps outside of Augustine, Tertullian has been the greatest theologian from the continent of Africa. And in the second and third century, Tertullian wrote this, God forbid... That we should believe that any soul, much less a prophet, could be called forth by a demon. In other words, he's saying the medium did not actually interact with Samuel. The 16th century reformer, Dr. Martin Luther, concurs. He wrote, Who could believe that the souls of believers who are in the hand of God and in the bosom of Abraham, a precursor to heaven, were under the power of the devil? Dr. John Calvin also concurs, God would never have allowed his prophet to be subjected to such diabolical conjuring as if the devil had power over the bodies and souls of the saints which are in his keeping. And I can marshal more, but I want you to know that as much as I respect all three of them, I don't think they're fully correct this time. And I want to make a case for why not. First, the plain meaning of the text is that she interacted with Samuel. It doesn't say that she interacted with someone like Samuel. It says that Samuel said or she said to Samuel. The second thing I notice is that when she conjures up the dead, she is startled. She doesn't expect what happens. I could take that one of two ways. Either she's just a phony altogether and she just does this for money. Or I think more likely she regularly interacts with a demonic spirit and this isn't it. What she's used to conjuring up is not what she all of a sudden interacts with This is Samuel, and it startles her. But I think most important, Samuel makes two predictions and a declaration. He predicts that Israel will lose tomorrow, and they do. That Saul and his sons will die, and they do. And he makes it clear that what is going on is wrong, that he shouldn't have been brought, that there shouldn't have been an attempt to bring him. That the occult is wrong. And I asked myself, would the demonic put down an attempt at the occult? And I think the answer is no. But where I would agree with Tertullian and Luther and Calvin is this I don't think there's a chance in the world that any necromancer, any spiritist or medium can bring anyone back from the dead. I don't think there's a chance in the world. They have gone into eternity, either in hell or heaven. And that is in God's hands. And 1 John 4, four says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God is greater. But yet I think it's Samuel. And I think God sent him. I think she may have desired him to come. But I don't think she has that power. I think God temporarily sends Samuel to give a warning to Saul and to us against the occult and the like. Well, there's a lot we could mine from the text, but I want to conclude with three thoughts. First, if you believe the Bible and you believe it's the inspired and errant word, then you and I have to believe that there is an unseen realm filled with angels and the demonic because the Bible teaches us that that's true and if I believe the Bible I probably lose too much energy considering that my enemies are those who don't agree with my morality or don't agree with my political persuasion because the Bible tells me that my battle is not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers and forces of this dark world. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. The Bible tells us that there is a spiritual realm and the occult is engaging in the wrong side of the spiritual realm. The occult is interacting with the demonic world, whether we know it or not, to gain intervention... Or some kind of information that God has not granted to us. The Bible's clear. That's where the battle is for us. So put on the full armor of God. The shoes shod with the gospel of peace. And the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. And the sword, which is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and the shield of faith to put out the flaming darts of the evil one, and the helmet of salvation and tie it all together with a life of prayer. That's what Ephesians 6 teaches. The occult, it's placing my confidence in horoscopes and astrology and palm reading and Ouija boards, and dungeons and dragons, not toys. Tools of the devil. Or how about this taken from Instagram? Hi, please read. Do not cry. Okay. God saw that you were suffering for something, and he says enough. A blessing is coming to you, and all you have to do is forward it to seven of your friends, and that blessing will come. And I say, forward it to your entire address book. Maybe you'll get a double blessing. What are we fooling around with? Is this something that God has encouraged us to do? In fact, he said, don't do this kind of thing. Second, if one is involved, maybe through ignorance or maybe through willful disobedience, let's remember if we're involved in the occult, Acts 19, 18 to 20, also many of those who are now believers came confessing agreeing with God that it's sin divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together burned them in the sight of all so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail and so if we're engaged in sin this sin or another sin we confess we agree with God we turn we repent And then we see the power of God being displayed. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the evil one, and the evil one will flee. And finally, let's remember that God doesn't promise to listen to every prayer. He doesn't. If I want the Lord to listen to my prayers, it's the prayers of the righteous that are powerful, effective. James 5, or Psalm sixty-six eighteen. 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not listen to me. There are lots and lots of reasons to honor the Lord with our lives, but the one that's in today's text is that if we want a prayer life in which God moves for his glory on behalf of his people, we have to be righteous people. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we continue through texts and topics that are difficult We pray that we would rightly divide your word. Father, we want to be women and men who honor you, who bring glory to your name, who keep short accounts. Father, every one of us, probably in different ways, has areas of sin that we struggle with. May we be confessors to you and empowered by your spirit may we turn from our sin and towards righteousness and father if we have engaged in the occult may we in the name of Jesus and the power of your spirit turn from that confess it and empowered by your spirit not return. Father, we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.